Let me go ahead and say happy Sabbath to everyone. It is truly a privilege to not merely be back in Southern California among so many friends and familiar faces, but it's a special privilege to be back at SWYC. On behalf of my family and I, we want to say thank you uh, for apparently listening to the voice of God and extending the invitation. And I'm glad that we were able to answer the call. Lord has something very important and very special to share with each of us. And I need you to pray that God will give you ears to hear. The message that I heard last night, um, it had very deep impact. Very, very deep impact. It was almost like you're in awe. And I'm meditating on these words and throughout the night, this morning. And I was on my knees saying, Father, I'm not inclined to do what was originally prepared. I believe you want something more, something deeper. And uh, the Lord brought something to my attention. When I joined this movement 26 years ago, I'm a kid coming out of hip-hop culture, very much ingrained in the industry. I wasn't just a guy who liked hip-hop. I was hip-hop. I personalized it. Everything about me was hip-hop. And then on top of that, I'm in the industry, and I'm literally dancing with the stars. And uh, this message, this movement, saved me from that industry. And so when I came out of that coming into this, I was on fire because I didn't think I had the ability to understand things from books. I was not a reader. I was not studious. The great, all of my memories in school was having fun. I cannot remember passing classes. I cannot remember doing well or anything like that. I just had absolutely no interest whatsoever. And so this movement got me interested in reading. It was like for the first time in my life, I said, hold up, I can actually understand not merely what comes from books, but I can actually understand what the Bible says. The book that I thought was the most confusing uninteresting book on planet earth and that thing began to hit me so hard that before you know it when those grooves just started working in my brain and here it is that I'm like wait a minute I know what Daniel says I know what Isaiah says I know what Peter says and James man I couldn't keep my mouth shut I mean you taught me one truth I taught that one truth like I knew the whole bible and it's a gift that God gave me I realized my gift Um, me and my friend Lance were talking about it the other day and I said, he's trying to tell me about a bunch of stuff. I said, look, man, I only have one gift. He said, what's that one gift you have? I said, I have a gift to help people see and to do what God says. I said, that is literally how I summarize my gift to help people see and do what God says. And so I've been exercising that and doing Bible studies from 
early on. One verse, all I knew, I preached it like I knew the whole Bible, and people were coming to Jesus. Now, here it is, fast forward, 26 years later, and I'm working at a church, and part of my duties is to go ahead and reach all those folks who are unchurched in New England. And uh, very powerful experience. Uh, I get to sit at least with 23 non-Christians every week. And I get to study with them. And I get to show them all sorts of things from the Bible. And there was one person that I studied with that went through a very traumatic experience. And this is how God shaped what he wants me to give you all this morning. And I'm thoroughly appreciative of it. I've been studying with this one person for a long time. It's been at least you know, a good two and a half, three months. And I was like, Lord, where is this going? I'm not seeing them surrender. And you know, I make appeals at the end of every study like we're told to do. But it was just this struggle. So I remember in our last study together, I sat down with her, showed her the gospel. Again, broke it down, the word of God, love of Christ. And I asked her, I said, will you? Surrender, not some, not most. Will you surrender all of your heart to Jesus today? I felt we got at that place in our study that we could do that. And I remember she leaned back and she said, I can't do that. And I said, tell me why. She said, I don't trust him. She says, I hear everything you're saying to me, Dwayne. I hear everything. But she said, I don't trust him. And I said, what makes you not trust him when he's shown himself so trustworthy? And she said, if he's so good, why did he let me go through what I went through? I must admit, this young lady has a story that's not probably connected to the majority of the women in here's story. She was brutally raped by a gang of men. And she said, how could he watch that? How could he let that happen if he's so big and so loving and all these other things? So when she said that, I thought about it and I said, well, I understand. And in truth, I didn't understand, but I'm like, I'm hearing your argument. She said, I was innocent. And this happened to me. And so I've learned in ministry, sometimes, first of all, when you don't have an answer, please do not make up one. That is the worst thing that you can do. God must prompt every word that comes out of the minister's mouth. And so I was quiet. I said, "I'm, I'm not saying anything unless you put something in my mouth. And he did. And here's what I said. And I'm going to tell you, the person who most clearly brought this point to me that I'm about to share was my wife. So I'm reflecting back on something my wife said to me that I'm now giving to this sister. And I said, sister, I said, you were innocent and you suffered terribly. I said, there's somebody else who came to this earth that was innocent didn't do anything wrong. And he suffered terribly. 
And she said this. And when she said this, that's when I said, I see. Not merely the problem with her. I said, this is the problem with us. And God confirmed it in his word. This is what she said next. She said, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be disrespectful. But she says, even Jesus did not suffer like how I suffered. And I said, I see. We talked a little bit more. We prayed out. And I had to go back into the prayer chamber. In business, in school, in whatever it is that we pursue in life, your why is more important than your how. Let me repeat that. It's worthy of repetition. In business, in school, in whatever endeavor of life that you have that is important to you, I mean important. Your why is more important than your how. There's all sorts of classes, YouTube videos, and all sorts of talk about how to do this and how to do that. And I'm sure we can even walk through it today. I'm going to do it. Brother Waller did a little bit last night. Pastor Mara did it. You know, and I'm sure we'll do it again even more. We talk about this is how you abide in Christ. But there's a very important question that needs to be answered. Why should I even abide in him? I hear what you're saying, but it's not making the connection. And if you don't know why you're doing something, you can know from front to back how to do it. Isn't it amazing we still don't do it? Think about it. How many of you believe in laws of health? You believe in the laws of health? You believe in that? Okay. Now, you believe in it. Now, watch this. Is one of the laws of health to drink water? Now, do we know that if you don't properly hydrate your body... All sorts of bad stuff can happen to your body, to your mind and whatnot. Do we already know that? So do you know that you're supposed to be drinking a certain amount of water every day? Do you know that? Do you know? Here's my question. Do you know how to drink water? Now watch this. How many of you are drinking the exact amount of water you're supposed to drink every single day? You get what I'm saying? It's not for you to put your hand up. I'm just trying to make a point. You know you're supposed to get proper rest. You know you're supposed to exercise. You know you're supposed to do a lot of stuff. To him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The point is very simple. We know how to do a lot of things, but our why is not strong enough. It's not enough of a motivation to say, I will do this every day because. And so there's going to be a... (laughs) There's going to be a serious, feeble attempt this morning, or this afternoon, I think we're in the afternoon now. I'm going to attempt to just give you a little bit more why. I just want to talk a little bit more about why. And I praise God for that sister. She has a lot of hope. She's so real. She said, look, she said, I'm here. She says, I've been coming to these studies. She said, obviously, I'm showing I want it. But it just hasn't come across yet to me. So I really thank God for I said, man, that sister's going to be a soldier for Christ. I could just see it. I mean, I'm like, once she's convinced, nobody's going to stop her. 
And so I think God wants us to talk a little bit about this today. And I believe that if we can get this down, and my fear is that there might be some of us, probably a lot of us, that won't get what I'm going to share. But I know that these words came out of my mouth this morning while I was finalizing my notes. And I put my notes together, and I started to think through the text. And as I thought through the text, these two words came out of my mouth. That's crazy. Literally, I just said, that's crazy. And these, these tears um, started to pour out of my eyes. And I said, why would you do that for me? And so I know that this message is from God and it's loaded with power. Because I know what it did to me this morning. And my hope and my prayer is you get it. I'm going to go to my knees and I'm going to ask God just for a little bit more strength and wisdom to make it plain. I know there's a lot of dirt on the ground, so you can bow your heads reverently, or if you don't mind the dirt, you can kneel, whichever you choose. We're going to let God speak and prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, what needs to be accomplished under this tent at this hour cannot be done by might. It's not going to be done by human power. It's only going to be by the faithful movement of your spirit. And Lord, we desperately need ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. And I'm just praying that do more for my brothers and sisters as a result of this message than even what you did for me this morning. Draw our hearts closer to you and your son. And I pray that we'll understand a little bit more why we should abide in Christ. This is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. Zechariah, and we're going to what chapter? All right. Zechariah 6. Now, Zechariah 6 is a pretty powerful chapter. It's loaded with some very strong symbolism and representations. My goal for this message is not to go into the various symbols and representations, starting all the way from verse 1 onward, but we're going to pick up right at verse 9, and we're just going to take it to verse 13 because this is going to be a part, I'm sure, it will be comprehensive to every man, woman, boy, and girl in the room. And the Bible says in Zechariah, we're looking at the sixth chapter. When you get there, just let me know by saying amen. Amen. The Bible says, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then it says, then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, 
And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is what? The branch. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon what? His throne. And he shall be what else? A priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. This branch is none other than referring to Jesus. Study that out. And there are two things that the verses show that Christ would become. One of them is somewhat indirect. The other one is straight to the point. The one that is indirect is that he will become a king. And the reason we know he would become a king is because the verse said that he would sit upon his throne. Kings sit upon thrones. And so he would be king, no doubt. But it also says he shall be what else? He shall be a priest. Got that? So he shall be a king. He shall be a priest upon his throne. And then it says, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Between this priest and kingly ruling, he's going to be, the council of peace shall be between them both. There was an agreement in heaven that the plan of salvation was going to be laid out for mankind. And this plan of salvation would involve the one who is God to ultimately become a priest and intercessor on behalf of the people. And then future tense, even future tense from our time, he will eventually become a king. The council of peace was in agreement. I started to think about it. Who's this council of peace? And, you know, when you look at Ephesians 1, verse 2, or you could look at Philippians 1 and verse 2, they both say the same thing, and they identify two persons of the Godhead. It says in Ephesians 1, 2, or again, Philippians 1 and verse 2, it says, grace be unto you and Peace from two people. It says peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that? So in these two prophetic positions of what Christ ultimately would do on behalf of the salvation of mankind, it was the council of peace, the father and the son that are coming together and standing in agreement with this plan of salvation. It's beautiful. And as they understood, we are going to put forth a plan for a people that is going to rebel. And we want to give them the best shot of coming back to us. And so as the Council of Peace came together, they are in agreement. We're going to do whatever it takes that mankind might be saved. To the point that the Father and the Son understood something very important. Go to the book of Revelation 13. It was right there in Revelation 13 that in the midst of this council of peace, there was something very important uh, that was understood. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, you will see that there was an understanding in the midst of the council of peace right from the beginning before the rebellion. The Bible says in Revelation 13, and we're looking at verse 8, 
The Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the who? Lamb slain from when? From the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son came into an agreement. Love looked love right in the face and said, We are in agreement that these people are going to go into rebellion, but we're going to put forth our best effort to make sure that they're saved. And the son agreed, I'm willing to even go as far as I will die that they might live. But then my mind starts to think even deeper because when they came to that agreement, when the Council of Peace came to that agreement that this is what we will be willing to do, that man might be saved. They understood no sacrifice takes place without a risk. No sacrifice takes place without a risk. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's take a look at that risk. I want you to look at this. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to consider the risk. They came to an agreement. Love looked love in the eyes and love said, I love them so much that I'll be willing to die the death they're supposed to die, that they can have the life that I have. And when they came to that agreement, they understood the plan was set, yet they also understood that there was a risk. In Hebrews, the second chapter, when you get there, let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, we're going to consider verses 14 to 17. The Bible says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto who? His brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This sacrifice was deep. Because when they came together and love looked love in the eyes and said, all right, we're willing to do this for mankind, they understood. Now, listen, because this plan has been put together, you do understand that there's going to be a risk. Now you're not going to have simply the seed of angels, but you're going to have the seed of Abraham. You're going to have a nature that is totally subjected to falling. And son, you do understand what I have to do if you fall. I thank God for an imagination because I am imagining this conversation. They are in such agreement for the sake of the salvation of humanity that they said, I'm actually willing to risk losing you forever. The son actually said, Father, I love them so much and I want them to be saved so bad and so desperately. I am willing to take a risk that I'll take on their nature 
and I'll live on earth like them, putting my trust in you. Understanding that if I sin even once, you will have to destroy me. And the father understood, son, you do understand. If you sin even once, I will have to destroy you. Desire of Ages spells it out like this. Satan in heaven had hated Christ for his position in the courts of God. He hated him the more when he himself was dethroned. Now watch this. He hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. Yet into the world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come, a helpless babe subject to the weakness of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it at the risk of failure and not partial, eternal loss. He said, that's how much I love you. It's not like he was like, well, look, I'm God no matter what. I'm God, so, you know, I go down to the ground. I'll just pop myself back up again. God said, that's not how this agreement's going to go. You do understand, son. If you sin, you're eternally gone. How could God die? This is something that you can't really wrap your head around it. Yet it's true. Second witness, it says, manuscript release, book 16, page 119, paragraph 3. Had there been the least taint of sin in Christ, Satan would have bruised his head. As it was, he could only touch his heel. Had the head of Christ been touched, the hope of the human race would have perished. Divine wrath would have come upon Christ. As it came upon Adam, Christ and the church would have been without hope if he messed up even once, just once. This is what the Council of Peace came together and stood in agreement. This was part of that plan of coming on earth, being the lamb, ascending into the sanctuary, being the priest, coming back and then ultimately being king and reigning. For Christ to do this, there was a massive risk. We could lose everything. We could lose everything. This is where it gets even deeper. I'm looking at this type of risk. You know, very few people, I don't know if there's even one person in this room that would take such a risk. You heard Pastor Marab here early, being a real man, being honest. And he said, can't give my baby up for you. Love you and I'll probably do lots of things. Drive across the country, spend money I don't have, max out my car to fly over, just to pray with you. I believe Pastor Morale do that's my boy. I mean, we've known each other for years now. I have a lot of respect for that gentleman. And it's like, you know, but when it came right here, he was honest and he said, this one, can't do it. And it's like God was holding his son. He's saying, I love you so much for the fact you're willing to do this. But you do understand. I can see him whispering in his ear. You understand the risk. And the son is saying, I understand. And the father's saying, 
I understand too. It was a very serious mission. It was a very serious, solemn mission. Now here's where it gets so deep. When you start considering what was willing to be done, the next question is, who is it that you were willing to do this for? Let's go to a text we all are familiar with, John chapter 3. Oh man, the Lord walked me through this thing. I'm telling you, that's why it prompted. At a certain point, it came out of my mouth. I said, that's crazy. Why would you do that? You know, John 3, 16 is the most perhaps popular quoted verse of the Bible. Uh, there are people who are not even Christians that know how to quote John 3, 16. And so the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the question is this. When the Bible says God so loved the world, who is that? You know, you're like, what does that mean? God so loved the world. He loved the planet. He didn't love the material. He loved the people on it. Right. So I don't believe the word world. Properly spells out what God was getting ready to do. So now let's go ahead and look at some other words that helps us best understand the term world. Romans five. When you go to Romans, the fifth chapter, I get a clearer picture of this world that the Council of Peace was willing to make such a solemn agreement. Notice what the Bible says as we consider Romans 5, and we're looking at what verse? Amen. Amen. We're looking at Romans 5 and verse 8, and here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet what? We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So in other words, the Council of Peace is coming together, making an agreement that involves the most intense, realistic risk. And God is doing this for the world. Yea, he's doing this for sinners. Now, I don't even think that spells it out enough. Go down two verses. Verse 10. And then it says in verse 10, same book, same chapter. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Brothers and sisters, God was willing to take on the most ultimate risk for his enemies. God was willing to take on this massive risk for people who were not for him, but against him. It doesn't even make sense. But yet this is what he's willing to do. So when we look at the council of peace coming together in agreement, love looking love in the eyes and saying we are willing to go ahead and do this for our enemies. It is not a wonder that God says, if you're ever going to have my character perfected in you, go to Matthew five. Go back to Matthew five. And I want you to watch what God says to us. And this is prophetic. This is powerful. And that's why I'm so thankful for what's happening nowadays. I'm very grateful for it. I want you to look at Matthew 5. I want you to watch this. This thing is powerful. I'm telling you. Gospel is powerful. I want you to look at Matthew 5. And I want you to look at what the Bible says as we start at verse 44. I want you to watch this. Matthew 5 and verse 44. Now watch. The Bible says, but I say unto you, do what to your enemies? 
Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? And then he says, be ye therefore as your father which is in heaven is perfect. Until you know how to love your enemies like God loved his enemies, you have no hope of Christ's character being perfected in you. Until you know how to love, I didn't say love people. Sometimes people add in words to what I said. I did not say love people. I said, until you learn how to love your enemies like God loved his enemies, you will not have the character of Christ perfected in you. And so we can study 144,000, but we ain't getting there. Because the 144,000, they follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. My brothers and sisters, if I was preaching on this pulpit right now, and if you saw my head go right and my body go left, you'd run out of here. <laughs> Is that right? You'd run out of here because you'd be like, all right, there's some spookism, spiritualism going up at SWYC. I'm out. Wouldn't you be gone? I'd expect you to be gone. Because that's a dead body. A body without a head is dead. But it's amazing. Colossians 1 tells us that Christ is the head of the church and that the church is the body of Christ. And if the head says, love your enemy, but the body says, no, I will take vengeance, you're dead. Do you get that? That's deep. The head says, I want you to love like I love. I want you to forgive like I forgive. I want you to pardon like I pardon. I want you to endure like I endure. You see, when you got that disappointing thing that happened to you, God was purging you. He was trying to help you see, okay, you got a crisis going on in your life right now. I want to see what you're going to do about it. I need you to respond to it the way I would. Brothers and sisters, you just heard it. The people who only love those who love them don't get the reward. And so it is that when the Bible says, be ye therefore perfect, that's the perfection. See, sometimes, depending on what present truth camp you come from, sometimes perfection is no bad music, no bad diet, no bad dress, no bad hanging out with others that are unconverted. No bad, no bad. We forget about the do good. We forget about the be good. You know, I got this little Apple Watch thingy. I got that because this is my little, uh, this is my workout coach. You know, Dwayne's time to get up. All right, coach. You know, I get up, you know, whatever. But one thing I put on here four times a day. Gospel Workers, page 204. I actually have my watch remind me of it four times a day. And it's good because it caught me sometimes. You know what Gospel Workers, page 204 says? What a man is has greater influence than what he says. And I lied to you not. There's been times that I would go ahead and I'm doing something and I get frustrated. Sometimes with a fellow worker. And do you know that when I'm ready to say, you know what, I just want to go ahead and tell this brother, ding, <laughs> what a man is has greater influence than what he says. 
I said, oh, praise God. All right, Father, forgive me. You know, Amen. if you're going to use electronics, use it for the glory of God. Yeah. But my brothers and sisters, we're living in a time right now where there are enemy forces that you can choose even amongst the remnant. You got precious truth against present truth. You got conservatives against liberals. You got any camp you want. Plenty of camps in the movement you can join. And right now, everybody's behaving like enemies. Put you on blast on YouTube. Put you on blast on their websites and all sorts of stuff. They don't call you. They don't pray with you. They got your number. They definitely got mine. And I got theirs. And I got a record of calling them. And what I'm saying is, is that it just seems so easy to hide behind cyberspace and attack each other. It takes courage to pick up a phone. It takes even more courage to get on a plane, jump in your car, and drive and meet them face to face and say, let's talk. What I'm saying, Jesus wants to perfect his character in you and in me. And one of the great reasons why, listen to what I'm saying very carefully, one of the greatest reasons why it's such a struggle for us to truly love as God loved our enemies is because we don't understand how God loved his enemy. It's the blind spot. Every time it gets us, man, it just gets us. And this is what God wants us to understand, is that this is the thing that's blocking us from getting to that next level. There are some of us that have studied Hard. And we can quote Bible. We can quote Spirit of Prophecy. We have gone through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, several times. We've gone through the conflict of the ages anywhere from three to five times or more. We've gone through the nine volumes several times. Many of us have gone through and we have read it. We've studied it. We prayed it. And the Lord has given us a lot. But yet there's still this block. There's this block that keeps frustrating our ability to unite as Christ has called us to unite. To forgive as God has called us to forgive. To actually shake a brother's hand or give a brother a hug without a suspicious thought in the mind. Stuff is hard. This is real talk. My man broke down that message last night. I said, oh, Lord, this is wonderful. You know, what I loved about it is I am so like, Let's get real with this thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you, I don't know about you. I'm really tired of sermons, personally. This is like, man, how many sermons are you going to hear? I mean, you hear so many sermons. And yes, you know, you tickle your intellect. You know, you, oh, wow, I never knew that before. You know, whatever. But when do we finally take what we've heard and go into a very private place and like Jacob wrestle with God and say, I'm not letting you go until you give me victory over this thing. Rather than, you know, just continuing the circle. It's vicious. The key is, Jesus says, you don't understand what I've done for you. I lied to you not. What I saw in that precious young lady in that Bible study, I saw in God's people. And I saw it in myself. I said, this is our issue. And he allows various tests to come to each of us in our different spheres. That's why I said, no, I'm going to deal with abiding in Christ and conflict and adversity, especially in ministry. Because a lot of us are in ministry. Canvassers, Bible workers, preachers, teachers, self-supported ministries, schools, sanitariums. We all are ministers, pastors, otherwise. And it's like, it's pretty much pathetic how we deal even with each other. Dave Fiedler, Norman McNulty, and myself were together at a Uchi Pines conference. 
And I felt very privileged to be around these men. I consider them giants in the word. And so I was sitting down and, you know, Brother Fiedler is one of those guys. You can say, hey, tell me something about the history. of And, you know, he just, well, well, you know, and he just kind of goes into it. You know, if any of you know Brother Fiedler, he's just like a walking library. And so he gave a quote that made Brother McNulty and I tremble. I remember Brother McNulty said, Lord, please no. <laughs> we sat down and he shared with us a quote. And I'm, I hope I'll remember it to give it to you before uh, the weekend's over. He shared a quote that showed it is possible. We might be stuck on this planet for at least another 50 years. And I remember when he showed that. It wasn't a time prophecy at all. It was the experiences that God's people need to be at. And then he lined it up with the trend of what's been going on in the church and how far we are. And how our progression typically takes ABC periods of time and so on. He said, could be up to. So please, I don't want to misquote my brother. He was not time setting, not in the least degree. He's just saying, we're in such a bad shape. And it's going to take so much that it could take at least bar a very powerful miracle from heaven. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is we can't even get sometimes five ministries to work together. We just can't. It's just too hard because there's lack of trust. There's, I mean, it's just, oh, it's just, it's a lot. It's hard to get gospel workers to work together. And that's why this ministry thing is a real burden on my heart. So Jesus says, if only they could understood how much I gave up. The father says, if only they could understood how much I was willing to give up. You see, when the father and the son came together in that agreement, brothers and sisters, it was as if it was done. The love was so strong that Jesus said, as far as I'm concerned, I'm willing to eternally be separated from you, that they can be eternally united with you. It was like done in his mind, you know, that if that's what it took, I'm willing to do it. Why do you think Moses said, Lord, please have mercy on them? And if not... Blot my name out the book. Why do you think Moses said that in Exodus 32? He said that because that's what love does. It makes you make strange covenants. So the Council of Peace comes together, right? They make this agreement for these wicked, nasty, wretched, miserable people. These enemies of ours were willing to put forth the greatest risk. Somebody did not like that meeting. <laughs> His name was Lucifer. You could read it in your spare time if you've never read it before. Isaiah 14, you know, 12 through 14. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. You could read that. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. You could read that. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Read it. When that rebellion broke out, this was the first initiation of pain that came to Jesus' heart. Very baby. You know how it is. I got parents in here. My man, Ben. I love his story. So glad to tell it on that message at Heartland College. I mean, just what an awesome story. I mean, man. Standing for Jesus. Trusting God. Holding on. A woman by his side every step of the way. We will go through this together. And here it is. They enter into holy matrimony. They end up coming together. They say, you can't have a baby. God said, uh, I respectfully disagree. 
does a miracle on behalf. And I know that when my man holds that baby, something precious. Jesus had a chief baby. This baby was brighter and excelled more than a lot of the other babies that they made. Those angels. And his own child turned against him. His own child pulled an Absalom. You know, said, I want to go against you. I want your throne. I want everything you got. And if I get your throne, I'll kill you. Can you imagine just your child saying that to you? Like how that would impact you? The child said, if I could kill you, I hate you so much, I'd kill you. And we just read it. I mean, part of the reason why he hated them. Look, he hated him the more when he himself was dethroned. He hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. Satan really hated Christ for a lot of reasons. He was mad. He said, I want what you have. I want to take what you got. And I want it for my own. And a war broke out in heaven. And I want you to think about this. This, we have to understand the pain of Christ through this covenant that he made to save humanity. That thing started in heaven. The pain didn't even start on earth. Look at what it says here. Powerful statement. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. Isn't that true? When we want to hurry up the coming of the Lord, we're thinking about our suffering. When we want to hinder the coming of the Lord, we're thinking about the unfulfilled goals. Either way, we're thinking about ourselves. Then it says, few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. Now watch this. It says, all heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very what? So as soon as rebellion took place in heaven, pain already started in the heart of Christ. And it says that at its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God every departure. Now look at this. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every what? Every failure of humanity to reach his ideal. You know, let's pause, please. Did you know that God has an ideal for your life? Do you know that God has a very specific place that he wants you? you got to think, brothers and sisters, think. Every failure of humanity reaching its ideal. You see Samson last night? Samson fulfilled the overall purpose, but he did not reach that ideal that God was trying to set up for him. You think God wanted him to go through all those vineyards, all those women and all that stuff? You think God ordained that? God had a different plan. Samson's actions, to a degree, tweak God's plans. And it's not just Samson. How about Moses? Do you know that God had a plan with Moses? God had a plan with that brother. God literally said, Moses. He was going to take Moses into Canaan, and he was going to translate him. But Moses messed up the plan. You see, when God told Moses, Moses, first round. Hey, there goes that rock. Brothers are thirsty. Go to that rock, and I want you to smite it. Boom, he smites the rock, 
Water of life comes out and the people are refreshed. Second time, Moses comes, people are thirsty. Moses goes to the rock. God says, speak to the rock. In a moment of heated rage, Moses strikes the rock twice. Do you know that Moses messed up the plan of salvation in its symbolic form? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 says Christ is the rock that refreshed the children of Israel. Now watch this. Christ was representative of that rock. And so the first time Moses came to the rock, it was appropriate that God said, smite it. Why? Because Jesus must be smitten. You understand that? In order for that water of life to come out of his side, he had to be smitten. He had to be struck, put on that cross. And so it was beautiful. God says, Moses, strike the rock. Moses strikes the rock. The water comes out. God says, wonderful. The plan is clear. But do you know that Jesus was only supposed to be struck once? You see, once Christ dies on the cross, he ascends into the sanctuary above where he ever liveth to intercede. And all we have to do now is speak to him. And so God says, Moses, you're coming to the rock now. Don't strike it. Speak to the rock. And when Moses struck it twice, he damaged the image of the gospel. That's why the father said, son, I love you, but I have to visit this. I have to visit this. Christ was stricken once. After that, we speak to him in prayer. And we receive the outpouring of the refreshing. It was a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, that image has been slightly damaged. And so God says, now I have to allow you to go through a rest period. Now, again, was God's will fulfilled? At the end of the day, where did he want Moses? He wanted them in heaven with him. Did that happen? Yes. But it was not according to the ideal that he set up. I believe a great grand majority of God's people are going to graves without fulfilling the ideal he planned. You know a guy who fulfilled the ideal? <laughs> but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him unto the heathen. Paul. God said, I got a plan. When that boy is born, I'm going to use him, and I'm going to separate him from the womb. But you know what's deep? Did God ordain Paul to persecute the Christians? So even Paul really doesn't fit this picture either. God has an ideal that he wants us to fulfill. And it's not just simply fulfilling the plan, but it's walking in the light and the harmony of the plan every step of the way. 
And if we're not careful, family, we can thwart that plan. And this is what God is trying to bring across to you and to me, is that he wants us to understand, even when you don't reach the ideal I've set for you, that brings pain. That's why the most important question, that's why as young as you are, and Brother Ben with your precious baby, y'all need to make sure that should the Lord tarry, should Brother Fiedler's prophecy come to pass, and you got a few more decades on this world, I'll say this, make sure that you and your precious bride from your side invest in helping that child to understand why they were born, the specific ideal that God has set. Now, there is a man who did do it for sure, and his name is Jesus. Twelve years old, he watches that animal get killed, and Jesus understood at 12 years old, that lamb represents me. He was clear, and he left that example for you and for me. The Bible makes it very clear, brothers and sisters. It says, every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Education, page 263. God wants us to understand that there was a lot of pain that he suffered from the beginning of time all the way through. Now watch this. Go to Matthew 2. When you look at Matthew, the second chapter, watch this now. In Matthew, the second chapter, consider verse 16. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, love look love in the eyes. They make a covenant that they're willing to take on the greatest risk that man might be saved. Goes all the way through this drama. First, the pain starts in heaven through the rebellion of Lucifer. And then as that pain continues, as he now comes on this earth in the form of a babe, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. As soon as Jesus came into this world, Satan was on his back. Satan was seeking to persecute him, even through his parents. His parents are on the run. They got to hide their precious baby. Satan wanted to kill him from the very beginning. Now, this is the beginning of his life and the beginning of his ministry. But now look at this. Go to John 19. If you look at John, the 19th chapter, notice this point. John, the 19th chapter. In John, the 19th chapter, notice what the Bible says here. Verses 28 to 30. John 19. We're looking at verses 28 to 30. The Bible says. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of what? Vinegar. And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. You got to understand when it says he received it, he didn't drink it. He tasted it. He realized what it was and then he rejected it. You understand that? This was what is called a numbing agent. It's a numbing. If you study the whole vinegar mixed with gall. And Jesus rejected taking it. You know why? Because Jesus knew. My mind. Must be clear. 
all the way till I breathe my last breath. If Jesus would have taken anything that could have impacted his mind, that would have caused him to possibly make one wrong decision, even in the final breaths upon the cross, the whole plan of salvation would have been ruined. Church has no hope. Christ must be destroyed. My point is very simple. From the moment he was born all the way till his last breath, Satan was trying to get him. All throughout this. Now, the reason why this gets deep is because through his whole her earthly pilgrimage, think about it. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. He was hated. He was mocked by his own family members. He was called a devil. He was beaten brutally and he was killed. This is his whole life in short. Constant battle, constant suffering. You would think Jesus was a man filled with sorrows, wouldn't you? You would think that because didn't the Bible say he's a man of sorrows? He said he's a man of sorrow. You think Jesus is a, was a sad man most of the time. Well, I thank God that's not true. You know why? If Jesus was a sad man all the time, then why in the world would he say, peace, I leave with you? My peace I give unto you. Then he says, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. John 14, 28. So Jesus, in the midst of mass suffering, still had peace. He had joy. You remember John 15 and verse 11? He said, these things I say unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy will be full. You see, you got to read Isaiah 53 carefully. Yes, it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the next verse says he took on our sorrows and took on our grief. Don't forget that. Jesus was a happy man. He was not a sad, depressed man. Otherwise, he has no peace to leave for us. He had no joy to give to us. He was able to maintain his peace. He was able to maintain his joy. Why? Because even though they rejected me, even though they punished me, even though they called me a devil, even though I came to give them life and life in abundance, even though I've done all this, he said, I thank God that I could still have union with my father. Until even that became broken. We would think this is enough of the sufferings of Christ. The thing started in heaven, continues down on earth throughout his life pilgrimage. But the most painful part of all is when 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, he became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might partake of the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. Now, you know what sin does. What's the impact of sin between man and God? Separates. For the first time in his existence, he had to be separated from the Father. And to have the Father look at him as the representation of sin and to look at him in displeasure. Now, you know why that doesn't really bother a lot of us? Because a lot of us have lived the majority of our lives displeasing God. We got used to it. Jesus says displeasing God, he knew nothing of it. All he ever known, 
John 8 and verse 29, the Bible says, I always do those things that please him. Christ says, I've never displeased my father. You got to understand the same way that you can have a child. I'm the privileged father of four children. I remember our children can become so attached to us that if an enemy comes and takes our child away from us, you ever seen how that child will fight to hold on to mother or father? You ever heard how a child screams when they're pulled away from their mother or father? Do you know there was an enemy that was pulling away the son from his father? The Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death was pulling Christ away from his father. And he was dying a death he should have never died. Because he did it for wicked, cruel enemies. And so he goes through this whole thing. And this is why great drops of blood are mingled with his sweat. He's going through an agony that, quite honestly, many of us cannot relate to. We've lived the majority of our lives separated from God. We live the majority of our lives displeasing God. That's why Christ says it's not enough for you to visit this topic. He says you have to meditate on it. You can't just read this. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's why I know. It's like as much as my heart says, Lord, give to every single person in this room what you gave to me this morning. God already made it known. Not everyone will receive it. It's just some of us that it's going to take a little bit more. But God assured me some will receive this. My brothers and sisters, you just got to make sure you're one of the some. I'm telling you the truth. When Christ went on that cross... He took on the punishment of humanity, past, present, and future. All on one person. Then he literally suffered. See, go to Isaiah 13. Some final text here. We got just a few more minutes. Isaiah 13. What is it that comes to one who is a sinner? You see, for Christ to become sin for us, he's being viewed by God as a sinner. So what does the Bible say happens to the sinner? Isaiah, we're looking at the 13th chapter. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, the 13th chapter, if you're there, please say amen. Amen. Verse 6, in Isaiah 13 and verse 6, it says, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with what? Wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall do what? Destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Jesus, for the first time, is sensing his father's wrath. For the first time in his existence, he's sensing the father's fierce anger. The same thing Hitler's going to feel. The same thing others are going to feel. They're going to sense that separation. He's sensing the separation. He's taking all of this on himself. It gets deeper because I'd love to say on the cross, he simply bore our sins. You see, every time a man would confess their sins, it would transfer from them to the substitute. Is that right? And the substitute would now become guilty. Is that right? So literally, Jesus never sinned, but nevertheless, he's receiving that. He's sensing the pain, the, the struggle, the wrath of God that would fall on a sinner. He's sensing this, even though he never sinned. If that were not deep enough, go to Matthew 8. All the medical missionaries, I think you'll like this one. 
In Matthew, the eighth chapter, think about it. Jesus bore in his own body the sins of humanity on the tree, though he never sinned. We can't even fully understand that process. But then look at what it says in Matthew 8. Every time somebody was forgiven for their sin, it was as it were that the guilt would now rest on Christ. But then in Matthew, the eighth chapter, verse 16, it says, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word. And what did he do with the sick? He healed how many? All that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. How could Jesus bear our sicknesses when he was never sick? Jesus says the same way I could bear your sins, even though I never sinned. In order for someone to be forgiven for sin, it was as it were that the guilt would have to rest on him. In order for someone to be relieved from disease, it was as it were he would let it rest on him so you could have his health. We don't understand what took place on the cross of Calvary. All heaven was spent and given in that one precious gift. And this is why. This is why when we think about abiding in Christ, the question is why? Why would I do that? Why would I do that for him? Jesus says, listen, until you get really and truly the cost of the cross, abiding in Christ is not realistic. It's not going to have the effect and the impact that God wants it to have. Because we're still going to intermingle self in the whole process. And self is like poison. This is why when I think about this thing about abiding in Christ, I leave you with these thoughts to consider. Look at what abiding in Christ is really about. Abiding in Christ means a living, earnest, refreshing faith that works by love and purifies the soul. That's what abiding in Christ is. A living Notice that earnest, refreshing faith that works by love and purifies the soul. Now watch this. It means a what? Constant receiving of the spirit of Christ. A life of unreserved surrender to his service. Oh, this is not enough. Watch this. Where this union exists, good works will appear. God's trying not to make it hard. Look, the life of the vine will manifest itself in fragrant fruit on the branches. The continual supply of the grace of Christ will bless you and make you a blessing till you can say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The sacred union with Christ will unite the brethren. Wow. The sacred union with Christ will unite the brethren in the most endearing bonds of Christian fellowship. Their hearts will be touched with divine compassion. One for another. Coldness, variance, strife are entirely out of place among the disciples of Christ. Watch this. They have accepted the one faith. 
They have joined to serve the one Lord, to endure in the same warfare, to strive for the same object, and to triumph in the same cause. They have been bought with the same precious blood and have gone forth to preach the same message of salvation. Do you see the level of unity that can happen when we begin to understand this principle of abiding in Christ? Watch this. Those who are constantly drawing strength from Christ will possess his spirit. Last slide. Those who are constantly drawing strength from Christ will possess his spirit. Then it says... They will not be careless in word or deportment. You see how even dress reform is impacted when you abide in Christ? In your deportment and how you carry yourself and how you present yourself. You will not be careless. Then it says, an abiding sense of how much their salvation has what? Cost. In the sacrifice of the beloved son of God will rest upon their souls like a fresh and vivid transaction. The scenes of Calvary will present themselves to their minds and their hearts will be subdued and made tender by this wonderful manifestation of the love of Christ to them. They will look upon others as the purchase of his precious blood and those who are united with him will seem noble and elevated and sacred because of this connection closing the death of Christ on Calvary should lead us to estimate souls as he did. His love has magnified the value of every man, woman, and child that I may know him. Page 132, paragraphs one, two, four. I am tired of preaching. I don't have the interest. I want to see this power go into action. I understand, family. By Monday, the team is going to meet and they're going to say, what are we going to do next year? Every camp meeting that ends, what are we going to do next year? And then next year when that camp meeting ends, what are we going to do next year? And it's like the rounds just keep going. I really believe that if this was truly designed to finish the work, it probably should have been finished by now. Because it's been going on for a long time. Like a really long time. How much of Southern California is being turned over with the first, second, and third angel's message? That's the fruit that got to come out, right? People got to give their hearts to God, make real changes. There's a whole lot of sick people that need a lot of help. Where are the sanitariums at? And don't tell me anything about L and L. Some of y'all got that. I'm saying, where's the sanitariums? Where's the outposts? This is how God has already told us it's going to get finished. And if we just keep saying, all right, next year, next conference. All right, next year, woo-hoo, next conference. I'm telling you, we might have to go back to Brother Fiedler and say, hey, man, I guess you were right. Here we are 50 years later. God wants us to understand there's something special 
It was stated so clearly last night. As soon as Brother Wallace said it, I was like, I know the answer to that question. Above anything else, God says, I want your heart. That is the reason why sanitariums are going down. That is the reason why, think about it. I do understand financial problems and this, that, and the other. You know, you, know you, listen, you look at a lot of sanitariums, a lot of schools, and they're constantly tanking. Why? Funds. Lack of funds. This, that, and the other. Listen, America's bank accounts are definitely problematic, but heaven's bank account is rich. God does not have a problem saying, go to the nearest lake and catch a fish, and I put all the money for your sanitarium right inside of it. God can go at any length to do whatever he wants. The problem is, do I have your heart? And if God doesn't have our hearts, even our sanitarium work will become dangerous. Because we'll give the people an incorrect presentation of who God is. And we'll slow down the process rather than speed it up. Do you know volume two of the testimonies to the church? I believe it's page 215 or 213. It says pride and self-esteem cannot flourish when the mind keeps fresh the scenes of Calvary. Did you know that? Proverbs 13.10 says, only by strife comes arguments. Only, only by pride comes strife, comes these arguments. How will we become united? How do we go forward in doing God's work? God makes it clear. The only way it's going to happen you need to revisit the cross. You got to look at it again. And you got to look at it to the point that you get it. That you understand this is what God has done. And so this past hour and change, whatever it was, um, it was a very feeble, humble effort <laughs> to try to introduce to our minds what we're going to study for eternity. In other words, that's why I believe God said some will get it, some won't. Some of us are at the place we can get it now. Some of us, it's going to probably take some more experiences. Maybe some more ups and downs. I hope it doesn't take your chest getting split open. But um, I'm really getting it. I'm really getting it. And that love is motivating me to be a better husband, to be a better father, to be a better manservant, to be a better gospel worker. My hope and my prayer for each of you, consider the cross. I mean, really meditate on what was done for you and let it fill your heart to such a point that you can go ahead and demonstrate it to others. For that's the bond of perfectness, Colossians 3 says. Question, how many of us understood the study? Did you understand it? Praise God. If, and I want you to listen carefully, and I especially speak this to ministers, but this is to everyone. If the theme of the sacrifice of Christ has not been your focus, 
you've studied a lot of other things, you've done a lot of other things, but for some reason this theme has not been your focus. And you can relate to a lot of things we talked about today and you see your need to renew a covenant with God to say, Lord, I am going to make this theme of Christ crucified a more focused point of study where I'm going to look at what he did for me and search my heart to see where have I fallen short of this and then seek to let God work out those areas in your life. If there's any of you in this room, and please understand what I'm saying. I'm telling you, I've been in ministry for many years, preached many countries, gone to a lot of places. This theme has not always been on my mind. I'm just telling you as a brother coming forward and saying to you, it is possible to be so busy even in ministry and preaching the quote unquote present truth that you begin to forget what God has done for you and it has now impacted you that you are forgetting how you're supposed to deal with other people. If there are any ministers in this room, when I say minister, I'm talking about Bible workers. You're a minister. Talking about canvassers. You're a minister. I'm certainly talking about evangelists and I'm talking to pastors. It is possible to do all this work and forget your foundation. If you've allowed yourself through the pressures of life, through the demands of ministry or whatever other elements are in your heart that's blocking you and has been blocking you from getting this focus and you're renewing your covenant with God to get it back. First, to the ministers, I'm inviting you to stand to your feet, whoever you are. If you're a gospel worker, a Bible worker, a canvasser, an evangelist, or whatever it may be, if you've allowed this thing to be lost in your work, and you know it's impacting your relationships. There are some of us in this room, you need to go to some people and tell them you're sorry. You need to go to some folks and reconcile. And whatever it may be, because God can't fulfill his ideal in us while this is still in our hearts. That's why you're standing. And as you stand, I want you to know that Jesus stands with you. He stands with you. Some people need to see this. Some people need to see that, yep, it impacts us even as ministers. Sometimes we can get distracted. And that theme is no longer our focus. I speak now to those who maybe you're not in any particular gospel work at this time. But you know the Lord's talking to your heart. You know the Lord is speaking to you and calling you and saying, look, you need to regain your focus. You need to restructure your thought processes. You need to come back and visit the cross one more time. And if that's you, because you got some hardness, some unforgiveness, some bitterness, some anger, some resentment, whatever it is that's still in your heart, God says, come back to Calvary and I'll show you how to solve that problem. I'm going to invite you now to stand to your feet. And as you stand again, Christ stands with you. And he will bless you well beyond your expectations. I had a special song that I wanted to be sung, but 
I know that our time is spent, so what we're going to do is we're going to do it in one of the other sessions under the tent during our time in our workshop. It's a very special song written by my dear sister Shana, and it speaks to the very subject that we were talking about. I believe if we get this foundation right, abiding in Christ, the why becomes a lot easier because he really did pour out himself in love just for you, just for me. And that's my response to my sister. You have suffered, but there's none of us that can compare to the sufferings of Christ. When we understand everything he went through, that he might save us, we cannot compare even our sufferings to his sufferings. I leave her name anonymous, but pray for that sister that God, by his grace, will get it across to even her heart what he did for her. And yes, she did suffer, but there is one who suffered more and was able to forgive, rise up, and has ascended into heaven. And may that be her experience as well. For those of you who have been getting it, you've been understanding it, and you just simply are saying, Preacher, help me to continue to keep this vision of Christ upon which my gaze shall be fixed, then I want to invite you to stand to your feet. And I want to charge you to please, please spend more time making this sacrifice known, even in our sermons, even in our interactions, and especially in our homes. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for this gift of love. We thank you that innocence died for me. And Lord, I pray that you will please help these images of the incredible love of Christ, your incredible love manifested through his sacrifice. May this help us and motivate us that we will not only come to you, but we will abide in you. This is our prayer we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.